Take your Bibles and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10. As we continue on in the book of Leviticus tonight, we are in Leviticus chapter 10. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says this, Now Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. Moses called also to Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come forward and carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came forward and carried them still in their tunics to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and to his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, so that you will not die, and that he will not become wrathful against all the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting, or you will die, for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did, according to the word of Moses. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Then Moses spoke to Aaron and to his surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Take the grain offering that is left over from the Lord's offerings by fire and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it, moreover, in a holy place, because it is your due and your son's due out of the Lord's offering by fire. For thus I have been commanded. The breast of the wave offering, however, and the thigh of the peace offering you may eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they have been given as your due and your sons do out of the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the sons of Israel. The thigh offered by lifting up and the breast offered by waving, they shall bring along with the offerings by fire of portions of the portions of fat to present as a wave offering before the Lord. So it shall be a thing perpetually due you and your sons with you, just as the Lord has commanded. But Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it had been burned up. So he was very so he was angry with Aaron's surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, saying, Why did you not eat the sin offering at the holy place? For it is most holy. And he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, since its blood had not been brought inside into the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary, just as I commanded. 
But Aaron spoke to Moses, Behold, this very day they presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. When things like these happened to me, if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of the Lord? When Moses heard that, it seemed good in his sight. Now this chapter contains what one writer referred to as the reversed image of the glorious ceremony of chapter 9. And indeed, who can argue with that assessment? If you were here with us last week, we saw in chapter 9 that obedience was offered to the Lord. The sacrifices were offered in accordance with his commandment, marking the beginning of the Levitical priesthood and the service of the tabernacle and culminating at the end of chapter 9 with the fire that came out from before the Lord, consuming the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar and the people responding by shouting and falling on their faces. But now we see the reverse. Now we see the acceptance of the Lord turned into judgment. Now we see the previous obedience of Moses and Aaron placed by the disobedience of Nadab and Abihu. Now we see the exultant shouts of the multitude replaced with the silence of the high priest at the loss of his sons. Fire had previously been a token of God's acceptance of their worship, but now is a token of his judgment, of their disobedience in his worship. The consumption of sacrifices in chapter 9 has now become the consumption of two priests here in the beginning of chapter 10. Michael Morales put it like this. He said, Leviticus 9 and 10 together portray both the blessedness of Israel's access to Yahweh as well as the depth of danger that access has simultaneously created for Israel. Both episodes are necessary to appreciate the implications for Israel's newfound nearness to the divine presence. Either one without the other would preclude emphasis on what is central in regard to Israel's cultus, namely, that the only way of approaching Yahweh is the way that he himself has opened by revelation to Moses. And so, as we consider Leviticus chapter 10 tonight, we'll do so under, under two main headings. One, God must be worshipped according to his word. God must be worshipped according to his word. And then secondly, the letter of the ceremonial law sometimes yields to the spirit of the ceremonial law. The letter of the ceremonial law sometimes yields to the spirit of the ceremonial law. And uh, just to, to kind of cue you in, we'll be focusing especially on verses 1 through 3 for point 1, and then especially on verses 16 through 20 for point number 2. And so first, God must be worshipped according to his word. The previous two chapters in Leviticus, Leviticus 8 and Leviticus 9, give us a demonstration of just that. Several weeks ago, when we were looking at the ordination of Aaron and his sons to the priesthood, in chapter 8, we saw that refrain again and again, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. You find that in chapter 8, verse 9, verse 13, verse 17, verse 21, verse 29. And that refrain shows up again in chapter 9, verses 11 and 21. Chapter 9, verse 6, Moses had said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And then the evidence of their obedience was the fact that after they had done all of those things that they were commanded, the glory of the Lord did appear to all the people, as you see in chapter 9, verse 23. And so that contrast 
which has preceded with what occurs now is abundantly clear. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Chapter 8 and chapter 9, again and again, they did just as the Lord had commanded. Here, they did that which he had not commanded them. Now, the text is is clear that they did what the Lord had not commanded them, but it is not so clear as to exactly in which that in which their sin consisted. Now, some have thought the sin was that the incense in their fire pan was not made according to the particular recipe uh, for incense that was to be used in the divine worship, the recipe given in Exodus chapter 30, verses 34 through 38. The strange fire in that case would be the fact that something strange, something unauthorized was burning in their fire pans. Some have thought that the sin lay in the fact that the source of the fire, that they did not ignite their incense with the fire that the Lord had sent down on the sacrifice at the end of chapter 9. In that case, it would have been strange fire in the sense that it had been kindled from an unauthorized source. Some have thought, based on the instructions that follow this incident in chapter 10, verse 9, is that Nadab and Abihu were intoxicated and that that may have led them to taking the action that they did. Because you see an explicit command there in verse 9, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. Somebody had just died. Maybe there's a connection. Some have thought, on the basis of the words of Leviticus 16, verses 1 and 2, that their sin lay in that they made an unauthorized attempt to get too close to the presence of God, to go further into the tabernacle than they were allowed to go. And so we find in Leviticus 16, 1 and 2, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And based on the way that the Lord frames the instructions for Aaron coming into the holy place, the fact that it is explicitly stated there in Leviticus 16 that Nadab and Abihu had approached the presence of the Lord, the argument is that in doing what they did, Nadab and Abihu attempted to enter into a part of the tabernacle which was off limits for them, that they attempted to approach the presence of God in an unauthorized way. And I think that that last uh, supposition, that last option is very plausible. And even if that is what actually happened, that does not rule out the possibility that one or more of those other elements were involved in the sin. There may, in other words, have been a whole constellation of things going wrong here with Nadab and Abihu's attempt here in chapter 10, verse 1. They may have been drunk. They may have used the wrong incense. They may have lit it on fire from the wrong source, and they may have gone further into the tabernacle than they were allowed. It could have been a combination of some or even all of those things. Whatever the situation was, it is clear they did that which the Lord had not commanded, and they were struck down for it. Moses gives the explanation for it in verse 3. 
It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. Now, we don't find those exact words in the preceding narrative of Exodus or Leviticus, but we do find the command in Exodus 19, verse 22, when the people were there at Mount Sinai. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. And it's certainly possible that the Lord did speak those exact words to Moses at some point uh, between leading the people out of Egypt and this point here in Leviticus chapter 10, because Scripture doesn't give us an exhaustive record of everything that the Lord necessarily communicated to one of his prophets, but it does give us a record of that which the Lord intended to be preserved and passed down. And so it's certainly possible that the Lord had explicitly spoken those exact words to Moses at some point, even though they're not in the preceding narrative. The point to be gleaned here is that the Lord is holy. He must be treated as holy and obeyed. The reason why Nadab and Abihu were consumed is that they did not treat the Lord as holy. They did not obey him. Now some might be tempted to say, well, they were just trying to worship the Lord. Why this outburst of wrath? It's because God is holy. He must be treated as holy. We must, in the words of Hebrews 10, 28, and 29, offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The fact that the service is designated as acceptable means that there are some ways which one might conceivably attempt to serve the Lord which are not acceptable. God is a consuming fire and must be treated as holy. That's not to say that every violation of the law was met with equal severity or that every violation of worship was attended with the same penalty. But nevertheless, at the advent of the Levitical service of the priesthood, we see a violation and we see a very clear judgment breaking out. And there's a, there's a parallel event in the New Testament as well. Think of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Spirit about giving all of the proceeds of the sale of their land, and they died right there in the presence of the apostles and the men carried them away. The Lord must be treated as holy. And so this has implications for us in regard to how we we worship the Lord. We want to worship Him and must worship Him according to His commandments. In other words, we want to have a biblical warrant, a biblical reason for what we do when we worship God. I think the 1689 Baptist Confession is helpful. I'll read a few excerpts from, from chapter 22 of the Confession and what it says uh, it says, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, or the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations, or any, un, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Prayer with thanksgiving, being one special part of natural worship, is by God required of all men. The reading of the scriptures, preaching and hearing of the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to him with understanding, faith, 
reverence, and godly fear. Moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in an holy and religious manner. Now, this is not to say that Scripture gives us a precise order of service that must be followed at all times in public worship, nor does it mean that every church service must look exactly alike or that every other church must conform themselves to our pattern. It was said in the 5th century by the Christian writer Socrates Scholasticus as he was kind of doing a, a geographical survey of what uh, church services looked like in different parts of the ancient world. He said, It is impossible to find anywhere among all the sects two churches which agree exactly in their ritual respecting prayers. So he's, he's kind of saying they do it this way in Thessalonica, they do it this way in Rome, they do it this way in Alexandria. And he says, yeah, no, no two churches alike do everything uh, exactly the same. But nevertheless, the point is that the scripture tells us the kinds of things that we ought to be doing when we gather together. And I just, just read the, uh, the 1689 Confession concerning those things, the, the reading of scripture, the, the preaching of the word, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. These are things that are commanded to us to do in the worship of God. Likewise, we're told in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, that all things must be done for edification. What does that mean? But that there may be some things that could be done which do not edify and that we must not do them. Rather, we have to do those things that edify. And how do we know what is edifying? We have to, have to look to the Word and we have to apply the Word with wisdom to our circumstances. We're told in 1 Corinthians 14.40 that all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And what does that mean? But that there are some ways of doing things that are improper and disorderly and therefore must not be done in such a way. God is holy, it must be treated as holy, and honored as such. And part of the way that we do that is to do things in a proper way and in an orderly manner and unto edification. We must worship God according to his word. Now in what follows here in the chapter, uh, we see here that Aaron and his sons are not allowed to remove the dead bodies of Nadab and Abihu. Instead, Aaron's cousins, Mishael and Elzaphan, uh, do that. Likewise, Aaron and his sons are not even allowed to mourn over the deaths of their family members. They are to remain focused on the way in which they were supposed to be serving the Lord. They were certainly not to act as if the judgment of God had been overly harsh against Nadab and Abihu. The rest of the nation, we are told, could mourn the, born, mourn the burning. But this mourning by the rest of the nation was not to insinuate that the Lord had been harsh or unjust in his dealings, but rather, probably, simply to bewail the fact that disobedience had taken place and therefore had brought the judgment in burning upon Nadab and Abihu. In verses 8 through 11, we see the Lord speaking to, to Aaron, giving instructions concerning what they ought to do as priests, not to drink wine or strong drink as they enter the tent of meeting. Again, it's possible that that was part of the problem with Nadab and Abihu. We can't say for sure. The priests were supposed to be completely sober when they performed their worship to the Lord. Serving the Lord is, is a serious matter. The priests, likewise, were to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the clean and the unclean. And in the, the subsequent chapters, particularly uh, chapter 11 through, through 15, you, you see that very thing being taught, the, the distinction between the clean and the unclean, between the, uh, with respect to, to animals, diseases, childbirth, and so forth. And likewise, we find here that the priests were to teach the people. 
You see that there in, uh, in verse 11, that they are to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord had spoken to them through Moses. This was an important role of, of the priest, was to communicate the law of the Lord to the people. Now, verses 12 through 15, instructions are given concerning the priests and their families eating from the sacrifices that had been offered at the commencement of this worship. The, the grain offering is to be eaten in a holy place. The breast of the wave offering and the thigh could be eaten in a clean place, a place which was not a holy place, but not unclean either. And the, the, breast, and the, wave, uh, the breast of the wave offering and the thigh could likewise be eaten by family members who, who were not priests. And that brings us then to the final verses of the chapter, verses 16 through 20, and, and so to our, our second point, which is that the letter of the ceremonial law sometimes yields to the spirit of the ceremonial law. We find this situation in verses 16 and following that Aaron, Eleazar, and Ithamar had violated the letter of the ceremonial law. The goat of the sin offering, which had been offered for the people, as described back in chapter 9, 9 verse 15, was, according to the law for sin offerings, to have been eaten by Aaron and his sons. Moses describes the purpose there in verse 17 by saying that they were to eat it, and in so doing, to bear away the guilt of the congregation. In, in that way, they, as it were, took the sins of the people onto themselves. And this points us ahead to Christ, the, the great priest, who bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Jesus truly took the sins of his people onto himself. It was figuratively done in the, the eating of the, the, uh, the sin offering, but it was done by Christ truly when he took our sins onto himself. And so in the Old Testament time, this was to be symbol, uh, symbolized and typified by the priests eating from the sin offering. The previous laws in the book of Leviticus made it clear that some sin offerings were to be eaten and some were not. And the distinction between them was whether or not the blood of that offering had been sprinkled within the holy place. And this is why Moses says here in verse 18, Behold, since its blood had not been brought inside into the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary, just as I commanded. And he, in saying that, is referring back to chapter 6, verses 25 and 26. By the law, they should have eaten. But Aaron... Eleazar and Ithamar did not eat the goat of the sin offering. Instead, they burned it all up. And Moses is angry. The letter of the law had been violated. The law had already been violated once that day, and two priests were consumed by the judgment of God. Moses is angry now that the law had been violated again. Aaron speaks up and gives his reasoning there in verse 19. He says, Behold, this very day, they presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. When things like these happened to me, if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of the Lord? The offerings were offered that day. By the law, Aaron was supposed to eat them. But Aaron asks, on a day like that, when these kinds of things had happened to him, would it have been good? in the sight of the Lord, for him to have eaten a sin offering. And when Moses hears his reasoning, verse 20, it seemed good in his sight. Now, what is this all about? Well, the argument that Aaron seems to be making 
is that on a day when such bereavement had happened to him, he could not actually fulfill the law in regard to eating the sin offering in an appropriate manner. That there would have been something wrong with the picture, wrong with the symbolism, if on a day like that, he had proceeded to eat the sin offering, there would have been something askew with the picture and the symbolism of what was to be portrayed. Though to this point, there had been no command regarding the inward disposition with which the worshiper was to participate in the eating of the sacrifices, nevertheless, we do find some laws later given in the book of Deuteronomy. And so, for instance, here are the words of Deuteronomy 12.7. This command is given in the, the context of a command for, for the people of the nation to come up to the tabernacle to worship and to bring their offerings, sacrifices, tithes, and so on. And the command is this, There also you and your households shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And there's something similar in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 26, verse 14, which is a, uh, in the context of a law respecting the, the bringing of a tithe to the Lord. The worshiper is supposed to say, as you find in Deuteronomy 26, 14, I have not eaten of it while mourning. Now, now, granted, these laws had not yet been given, and even when they were given, they were not given specifically in regard to the priests eating the sin offering. But nevertheless, there may be some implication here that the eating of the sacrifices more broadly was to be, was to be done in joy, Gladness, rejoicing in the Lord. And Aaron's question to Moses is whether it would have been good in the Lord's sight for, to, for him to have eaten such a sacrifice in a day of sorrow. He, the, the implication of the question is that it would not have been good. And Moses seems to agree. Now what should we make of this? Was Aaron's reason sufficient? Or was it deficient. Calvin disapproved, and he said, it was not a just defense, for he ought rather to have striven against the feelings of the flesh, so that his domestic calamity should not withhold him from the service of God. But inasmuch as in his perplexity his fear was deserving of pity, Moses forgives him, and it is said that uh, he was appeased because he finds less of evil than he supposed. In other words, at least according to Calvin's take, Aaron did not do what he should have done, but he did give a reason, and because of that reason, his sin was not as bad as it could have been. That's, that's Calvin's take. I would incline more, though, to the, uh, the opinion of Andrew Bonar. Andrew Bonar said that Moses saw that Aaron entered into the spirit and meaning of the rites among which he ministered and, sat, and was satisfied. And it is to be noticed that this attention to the spirit and not the mere letter of the ceremonial law at the very outset indicated to Israel that the things signified by these types were their chief concern, not the bare types themselves. And how interesting to find Aaron thus exhibiting his understanding of the emblems of the tabernacle. Aaron's service was not formality. It was a worship done in spirit, and where the spirit could not accompany the rite, he left the rite undone. Herein he glorified God. He gave him the honor due unto his name. He felt that it was not worship at all if his soul was not engaged, 
for God is spirit. Now, Matthew Poole allowed for the possibility that Aaron understood, quote, the letter of the law oftentimes yields to necessities or great accidents. The letter of the law oftentimes yields to necessities or great accidents. And indeed, Scripture does actually bear this out with respect to the ceremonial law, that the letter of it sometimes yields to necessities or great accidents. Now, Second Chronicles 30 is, is a case in point. Now, I'm not going to be reading at length from Second Chronicles 30, but it might be helpful if you're, if you're following along to have a finger there in Second Chronicles 30. In Second Chronicles 30, what you have is the celebration of the Passover under, under King Hezekiah. The, Nathan, uh, the, uh, the nation of Judah and those who were faithful still in the northern kingdom had, had come down and they were going to join together in celebrating the Passover. King Hezekiah had begun his religious reformation in the first month of the year, as we find in 2 Chronicles chapter 29. And so by the time they had gotten the wheels spinning and were ready to celebrate Passover, it was the second month, and it was actually a month late, right? The law prescribed for Passover to be celebrated in the first month, but by the time they were ready, it was the second month. And fortunately, the law did give an exception clause, Numbers 9, verses 10 and 11 outlined conditions under which Passover could be celebrated in the second month. And so this is Numbers 9, 10 and 11. If any one of you or of your generations becomes unclean because of a dead person or is on a distant journey, he may, however, observe the Passover to the Lord in the second month on the 14th day at twilight. They shall observe it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and herbs. And so Hezekiah and company are all geared up to celebrate the Passover in the second month. Okay, so far so great. But there was a problem. Second Chronicles chapter 30, verses 17 through 20 demonstrate that some of the people were unclean. And this uncleanness is a problem in regard to the eating of the Passover. By the letter of the ceremonial law, the people were not allowed to eat if they were unclean. And this was, this was the reason for the exception clause in Numbers chapter 9, that if you're, if you're not clean in the first month, okay, hold off, eat it in the second month. But now they're, they're geared up to eat in the second month and you've got some people who are still unclean. Technically, by the letter, they shouldn't be allowed to eat the Passover. According to 2 Chronicles 30, 18, there were a multitude of people who had not purified themselves, but they went ahead and ate of the Passover. It's contrary to the letter of the ceremonial law. Under the circumstances, it seemed better for those who had prepared their hearts to seek God, the Lord God of their fathers, to go ahead and eat, even though they were still ceremonially unclean, even though they still had not yet done everything that was required according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. Hezekiah prayed for the people and... Uh, Matthew Henry put it this way. He said, this was the second month, and there was no warrant to put them off further to the third month, as if it had been the first month. The law would have permitted them to eat it in the second, and they were loath to forbid them communicating at all, lest they should disregard, uh, discourage new converts, and send those away complaining whom they desired to send away rejoicing. And so Hezekiah prayed for these men, even though they were ceremonially unclean, their hearts were right. According to Hezekiah's prayer in chapter 30, verse 19, they had prepared their hearts to seek the Lord. Their 
they were technically unclean, but their hearts had been prepared to seek the Lord. And Hezekiah asked the Lord to pardon them, and we're told that the Lord heard his prayer and healed them. He forgave them. He didn't hold it against them that they went ahead and ate the Passover. And so it, it seems that we have an example here in Second Chronicles 30 of the letter of the ceremonial law yielding to necessities and great accidents. And at first glance, this seems really odd. But what we have to remember here is that even though the Israelites were not to play fast and loose with the ceremonial law, there were some times where there could be exceptions in extreme circumstances. And our Lord Jesus himself taught as much in Mark chapter 2, 25 and 26, as we heard at the beginning of our time together. He said to the Pharisees this, he said, Have you never read? What David did when he was in need, he and his companions became hungry, how he entered into the house of God in the time of Abiathar the priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. The Pharisees had been giving Jesus a hard time because the disciples were walking along and picking the heads of grain on the Sabbath, violating their interpretation of the Sabbath command. And Jesus brings up the example of David, 1 Samuel 21. David and his men had been on the run from Saul. David obtained the bread of the presence from, uh, from the priest at Nob. The bread of the presence is described in Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. And it is, in the law, specifically reserved for Aaron and his sons. As Jesus said, it is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. But nevertheless, David took it, ate it with the help of the priest. And he gave it to those who were with him. This is pretty clear. Violation of the Old Testament law. It is not lawful. But Jesus took it for granted that David did not sin. And he took it for granted that the Pharisees would agree with him that David did not sin. He doesn't try long and hard to to argue with them and to convince them that David was in the right. He apparently takes it for granted that they will agree that the preservation of the Lord's anointed and the preservation of his men while... He's on the run from wicked King Saul, justifies, in extreme circumstances, the eating of the consecrated bread, which, according to the letter of the ceremonial law, is only lawful for the priests to eat. The point is, extreme circumstances sometimes warranted deviation from the ceremonial law. And in this case, uh, the the case in 2 Chronicles 30, at Hezekiah's prayer, the Lord allowed these men whose hearts were prepared but were still ceremonially unclean to eat the Passover. The Lord showed himself to be good. He heard Hezekiah's prayer and he healed these men. And the kindness that God showed to these men whose hearts were right, but still did not technically have all of their ducks in a row, should be very encouraging to us. Because the Lord is kind and gracious to us despite our many sins, despite our many infirmities. And here in Leviticus 10 with Aaron. The letter of the law required him to eat the sin offering, but he looked beyond the mere letter of the ceremonial law to the intent behind the ceremonial law. He was supposed to be joyfully worshiping the Lord and the eating of the sacrifice, and he would not have been able to do that on that day. The Lord not only sees the outward performance, but he sees our hearts behind the outward performance. Now, you may be asking, well, this is, this is really neat, but what, what are we supposed to do with all of this? 
what are we supposed to do with this? That the letter of the law oftentimes yields to necessities or great accidents. Well, let me be very clear. What we must never do with this is to play fast and loose with Scripture or to glibly undermine the authority of God's commands. We see somebody playing fast and loose and glibly undermining the commands of God at the beginning of chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu. We must not use Leviticus 10 or 2 Chronicles 30 or David's example in 1 Samuel 21 or the words of Jesus in Mark 2 as an excuse to undermine the authority of Scripture. And we must also recognize that in all of these cases here, we are dealing with issues of ceremonial law, not, not moral law. These, these that we are dealing with are not issues in regard to sexual immorality, murder, idolatry, coveting, theft, lying. This is not, this is not that, right? We're, t- we're talking ceremonial law here. So uh, don't, don't, try to, don't try to glean exceptions to the, to the ten, ten Commandments or a, an exception to loving your neighbor as yourself, an exception to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not here. So don't be looking for that. But you may say to me, well, Neo, we're not under the ceremonial law. That has been done away with in Christ. So far, so good, yes. But we must not suppose that we as New Testament Christians have no ceremonial laws. We actually do. Probably the clearest example of this is in regard to the biblical instructions connected to the ordinances or, or the sacraments. As such, in those cases, the letter of the law might sometimes yield to necessity or to accidents. And so, for instance, if a church member desires to come to the Lord's table whose body cannot tolerate bread, they might have to partake of the cup alone. If a church member wants to come to the Lord's table who, uh, whose body cannot tolerate the fruit of the vine, they might have to partake of the bread alone. And in such circumstances, we must not view them as in any way deficient or in any way disobedient. And these, these kinds of issues have cropped up in the, in the history of the church. And so, for instance, John Lay, who was a member of the Westminster Assembly, dealt with one of these questions concerning a young woman whose body could not tolerate bread in the Lord's Supper. And he, he wrote, a, wrote a book about it called The Case of Conscience Concerning the Sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And in that book, he advocated communion in one kind when the other kind could not be physically tolerated by the worshiper. Likewise, the, uh, the discipline of the, the French Reformed churches, the Huguenots, uh, stated this. They said, The bread in the Lord's Supper shall be administered unto them who cannot drink wine, they protesting seriously that it is not out of contempt that they do forbear it. Besides, they doing their utmost endeavor for it, yea, bringing the cup as near unto their mouth as they can, and taking and touching it with their lips. All occasions of offense will by this mean. Uh, will by this means, in this case, be avoided. And we might, we might look at this stuff about the Lord's Supper and say, well, yeah, this is a big deal, so what? Well, in the 16th and 17th century, this was a big deal. It was a big deal because in the Roman Catholic worship, you were only allowed the bread unless you were a priest. You got to drink the wine as a priest, but it was communion in one kind. And so, and so in, the, in the Reformation, it was, it was a big deal to partake of the Lord's Supper in both kinds, the bread and the cup. And... What do you do when you have people who, physically speaking, can't? Well, the letter of the ceremonial law sometimes yields to accidents or necessities. And similarly, concerning baptism, if we were to have someone make a profession of faith 
and they were not physically capable to be immersed, I'd have to get out a bucket and pour some water on their head uh, in, in baptism. Because I know that there have been some Baptists historically who would have said that, well, such a person is providentially hindered from the ordinance, and, and if they're consistent, they would say providentially hindered from church membership, providentially hindered from the Lord's Supper. That's an awful lot of providential hinderings for me. I, I, can't, I can't, go that, can't go that far. And so I think there is something for us to glean from this practically, even though we ourselves are not under the Levitical ceremonial law. Uh, one pastor once wrote that the ceremonial law communicates truth symbolically. And when the truth can't be maintained, it's modified. When the truth symbolized by the ceremony can't actually be maintained in practice, then there's some flexibility for modification. I think we see that in Leviticus 10. I think we see that in 1 Samuel 21 with David on the run. I think we see that in 2 Chronicles 30 with King Hezekiah and the Passover. And so, again, I'm not attempting to play fast and loose with Scripture nor attempt to convince you to do the same. But what I am saying is that sometimes the ceremonial law does yield to accidents and necessities. And we need to understand that the Lord is merciful and gracious. Nadab and Abihu were consumed with fire. Aaron was not. Aaron continued on serving the Lord as a priest. Eleazar and Ithamar were not consumed. They continued on serving the Lord as a priest. And so we don't play fast and loose with Scripture like Nadab and Abihu did because our God is a consuming fire. But we also learn that the Lord is merciful and gracious to us in our weakness and that the ceremonies that he has given to us, even as New Testament Christians, are meant to communicate and convey truth, truth that stretches beyond the ordinances themselves. The water of baptism teaches us that our sins are washed away and that we are raised to walk in newness of life. This is great fundamental reality of the Christian life. The elements in the Lord's Supper, the the bread and the cup, teach us that we are partakers of Jesus' body and his blood by faith, that our sins are washed away because of his sacrifice for us, that we are partakers of his blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There is a truth that the, the symbolism is conveying, and it's a wonderful and glorious truth. And so let's give thanks to God for his kindness and his graciousness to us, and let's also seek to worship him in reverence and spirit and truth. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight, and we acknowledge that this is a, is a difficult text. We, we see men who are killed in judgment, and we see Aaron and his other sons neglecting the letter of the law at the end of the chapter. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight and understanding into your word and lord we pray that you would would help us that we would walk faithfully before you that we would never play fast and loose with scripture but that we would also look beyond the letter of the ceremonies to what truth they are communicating about you and about the great salvation which you have provided for us in christ we ask your blessing upon us as we go forth this week pray that we would serve you with all of our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.